Good morning, everybody. You can meet me in Ephesians chapter 6. So if you have a Bible or if you want to follow along on your phone, look that up as we wrap up our time in the book of Ephesians, this conversation that we've been calling Exiles. We're going to look just uh, at a couple of verses and then we will... Uh, we're going to tie this whole thing together this morning, all right? So here we go. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. Finally, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the ruler's against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we come this morning to the end of this letter, grateful for these words that this guy Paul wrote to this little, young, new church in a city called Ephesus 2,000 years ago. They had no idea what they were doing, just trying to figure this thing out, no blueprint to follow. And so this very specific communication from Paul to this church, it still speaks to us today in so many ways. And so, God, we're grateful for all the different ways that you have been speaking to us through this letter. We ask now that as we come to the end of it, we would, uh, we would continue to be open and receptive to what it is that you want to say to us, that we'd be able to hear it, and then, God, give us the courage to respond in whatever ways we need to respond this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, Ephesians chapter 6. I grew up in the church. My parents became uh, Christians when they were in college, and my dad uh, immediately went into ministry, so I was a pastor's kid. But my parents, uh, again, they didn't have that background of having grown up in the church th themselves, and so they had these gaps in their knowledge. And from time to time, people would come to them and say, hey, do you know about this thing? Have you heard about this? Or, or something would come up in conversation and it'd be like, how do you not know uh, about this thing? And one of those things, this is, this is going to be a little bit of church history for you, all right? One of those things back in the 1980s, there's like eight people here who remember the 1980s. But back in the 1980s, there was a guy by the name of Frank Peretti who wrote a couple of books. Um, we have, uh, there's a fan. All right. He wrote a couple of books called This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness. You can see that the cover art was prime. <laughs> Outstanding. Um, he wrote these books as a sort of creative expression of this idea of spiritual warfare. All right, and this is something that Paul talks about here in Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to get into this in a moment, but I want, to, I want us to sit in the 1980s here for just a second because these books, like, they freaked people out. And I, I read them a little bit later. I read them when I was in middle school, and they were, like, legitimately frightening and, and, and like, vivid imagery sorts of books. The, the one that stands out to me is that there was this, there's this moment where someone is standing in line at the grocery store. 
very kind of mundane, everyday sort of thing, standing in line at the grocery store, and like over their head is this gruesome knife fight happening between a very good-looking angel. The angels were always like ripped and good-looking in these books. And then this like horrific demon. And they're like battling it out, having this big thing. And this person is just totally unaware of this reality, right, as they stand there in line at the grocery store. And I remember reading this. I was like 11, 12 years old and being like, oh, my goodness. Like, is this real? Like, is this, what is this? And a lot of people had that experience, right? In our, in, in our secular world, we tend to not pay attention to spiritual realities, to, to deny them, push them away, or, or pretend like they don't exist. And this happens not just in the quote-unquote secular world. I think this, this mindset sometimes does invade the church as well. So I think that Frank Peretti actually did at least a little uh, uh, there is, in fact, a spiritual battle. There are these forces for good and evil at work in our world. But much like the Left Behind series, and I had to use, I had to use Nick Cage for this. I, it just, just seemed like the right thing to do. But just like the Left Behind series, what, what these books effectively did was just scare people to death through bad theology. All right? Yes, Left Behind, bad theology. Okay. You can write that down. The, the books, I think they left a lot of people afraid. And they left a lot of people with this concern that, that there's a demon behind every rock. That there's uh, uh, every moment is this huge spiritual moment that could like change or disrupt everything. And so again, I feel a lot of people walked away from those books and that experience with this great sense of fear. Now... I want to begin just by saying this, to be very clear, spiritual warfare is a real thing. This is not just a thing that happened when Jesus was around or 2,000 years ago when the church was getting started. It is a real thing. And we do well to pay attention to this and to take this seriously. And I think it manifests itself in a couple of different ways in our world. There's definitely the spectacular moments, but there are also ways in which this battle is taking place in very unseen ways, but ways that can be quite insidious. We're going to kind of break that down and talk about what that means here in just a moment. But one experience that I have had with this was when I was in India many years ago, I was at a church gathering like this on a Sunday morning, and right in the middle of the sermon, a woman comes into the gathering, and she falls down on the floor and starts writhing around, and the pastor just very calmly stops the sermon, walks down, puts his hand on her, says a few things, and then she just like gets up and, and, sits, uh, and sits in a seat. And I was told that like he, she was demon-possessed, and he cast out the demon, and that this happens fairly regularly. She continued to be repossessed uh, time and time again and would come to this church for healing. Okay? That is one of those like spectacular, like, oh my goodness, did that just happen moments? And yet there's also ways in which spiritual warfare plays itself out in, the, in kind of the everydayness of our lives. So again, we would be foolish, I think, to ignore the reality at work here. The reality of the spiritual battle that is going on around us. But we also do not need to be freaked out by it. And we do not need to get weird about it. All right? So what we're going to do here for a moment, as we get to the close of this letter, I want to name a couple of realities about spiritual warfare, which I do think is one of the more neglected aspects of being a disciple of Jesus. 
I want to name a couple of realities, but I also want to offer three statements of good news that I think help ground our understanding of this sometimes weird, sometimes bizarre idea of spiritual warfare. All right, so reality number one. There are spirits that are against your flourishing. Paul, in Ephesians 6, he calls them the devil's schemes or spiritual forces. We have ample evidence of this from Scripture. But I also think that if we are just being honest, we have to admit, we have to admit that there are forces at play in the world that are clearly not good. And I know that sounds like a duh sort of thing, but like let's just call it what it is. You're flourishing that are in fact evil. I think one of the great deficiencies of our culture is the inability to name evil. And again, before we get all self-righteous and like, oh yeah, people don't know how to name evil, let's, let's consider that this is an issue, I think, in the church as well. Where we love to talk about sin, but we hesitate when it comes to this idea of evil. I think part of this is because we have a very thin definition of sin. We tend to think of sin as rule-breaking, right? There's good stuff that you are supposed to do. There's bad stuff that you are supposed to not do. And we just kind of think about it as this. Well, I, I did some good stuff, and I try to avoid the bad stuff, and that's pretty much the, what the whole conversation of sin is all about. But evil is anything that separates or tears apart or breaks relationships. And again, there are forces at work in this world that, that want to undermine and tear apart relationships. Right relationship with God and right relationship with each other. I think we see it. We, we know it. We feel it in our bones. And scripture definitely attests to it. Evil forces at work in the world, hell-bent, literally, on undermining right relationship with God and with each other. That is reality number one, but there is good news. Yes, there are spirits that are not for your flourishing, but we can live confidently. We do not need to be afraid. Paul does not end this letter. Remember, he spent so much time in this letter reminding the Ephesians of who they are speaking life and encouragement. This is how much God loves you. Just like we sang a moment ago, the, the, how wide and long and deep and high is God's love. Know this love, know this love. And then, oh, by the way, here's a really scary thing. Peace, I got to go now, right? Like that's not what Paul is doing here. He, he brings this up not to freak them out. This is part of the, the thrust of encouragement that runs all the way through this letter. And then this, when he says be strong, what he's saying there is not, you know, hey, um, uh, God loves you, but also there's like really scary stuff happening. So you know what, just, just like, just be strong. You know, you, you'll be fine. I don't know. He's reminding them that their strength comes from this relationship they have with this God who loves them. Right, everything that they need. Everything that they need to navigate this battle, they have it. They already have it. So rather than, you know, this is about freaking you out, this is about, hey, reminding them, it's okay. 
You, you can relax. You don't need to be scared about this. You don't need to freak out. You are in good hands. The Lord's mighty power is with you. The Lord's mighty power is with you. Reality number two. Spiritual warfare is about spirits, not people. Now again, that might sound very obvious. <laughs> but wow, are we able to twist this around and, and do we get this wrong all the time or what? Powers, not people. Now certainly, people do evil things. And... Uh, we need to have boundaries. We need to remember that we are finite human beings. We cannot fix everyone, love everyone, take care of everyone. But we spend, there's just a lot of sideways energy that could be used fighting spiritual powers that we end up using against people. And even just think about some of the language that, that, that we use, not just in the church, but in our culture. We talk about when, when we have someone who, who we feel like we're on the other side of the aisle, so to speak, or we disagree with them. What do we do? We demonize them. And just think about that language for a minute. What is that saying? What we are doing there is we are clearly taking a spiritual truth and we're putting it on a human being. Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Or as the King James says it, every now and then the King James is really helpful. The powers and principalities. Powers and principalities. I love that word principalities because it speaks to this idea of kingdoms. That there are kingdoms with different values and priorities, that there are kingdoms that are in conflict, that there is the kingdom of God and then there is the kingdom of not God. Right? There, are, there, there are these forces in the spiritual realm that are for your flourishing and then there are those that are not. But too often we turn this into fighting people when we should be fighting powers and principalities. The other issue that I think happens sometimes with spiritual warfare is that it gets reduced to a, a personal struggle. We have this like uh, Homer Simpson, right, good Homer, bad Homer thing going on, right, where it's like there's this little devil that's trying to get me to eat a donut. Or look at, you know, this webpage or whatever. And we do want to avoid those things. But spiritual warfare is so much bigger than just like this personal temptation issue part of it, but it's so much bigger than this. We are fighting powers and principalities, not just temptation to eat a donut or people that we disagree with. Are you with me? Now there's a long list of powers and principalities at work in our world. I just want to name a couple of them to sort of bring this to light, to help us see this, make sense of this, begin to name how this works in our world, the first power and principality, and I think that these all fit together, but the first power and principality that I would name is busyness. This is an increasingly global principality, but it is especially pernicious in the West, in the United States, and oh, definitely here in Davis. Am I right? There is this spirit of busyness that keeps us moving, 
that traps us in a fear of falling behind and that prevents us from slowing down and sitting with ourselves, with God, with some quiet, without a screen in front of us. There is a spirit that does not want to allow us the space to take a long, loving look at what is real. This has been our, our working definition of prayer here at Discovery. A long, loving look at what is real. The spirit of busyness keeps us moving constantly, constantly, constantly. And as a result, we lose touch with ourselves. We, we, the spirit keeps us from intimacy with other people and with God. And then it's no wonder we have an identity crisis as a culture. We don't know who we are or what we're doing because we haven't slowed down enough to listen. And so we go looking for identity in all sorts of areas and the principality that has swooped in and filled that void, at least in our moment, I think is politics. Right? There is a spirit around our political discourse in our country right now. Right, the spirit of political discourse here, it's winner take all. There's no nuance. There's no conversation. It creates enemies out of any kind of opposition. This is where we do some of our greatest demonizing. This spirit that divides and conquers and unfriends and mutes. And, and by the way, it has deeply, deeply infected the church. Capital C, church. I think a large reason for this is yet another principality. This would be, I think, the thing behind the thing in many ways, money. Or as Jesus said, mammon. This is one of those weird things where if you're just reading through, you're like, mammon. And then you just read on to the next verse and <laughs> don't think about it too much. Again, though, older translation is helpful here. This is where Jesus says you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is actually an Aramaic word that the original writers, in this case Luke, chose not to translate into Greek. And I think this is really interesting and also extremely helpful because it's so easy to, to reduce money to a thing. right? Just a number on a web page in a bank account somewhere. But giving it a name reminds us that it is also a force, a spirit, a power. And it is not neutral. Why are we so busy? Why has our political discourse become so all-consuming mammon? The economic forces at work in our world are not concerned with your well-being. Right? They do not promote shalom. Mammon always pushes us towards anti-shalom. Remember, one of our definitions of shalom is right relationship between us and God, us and each other. So reality number two is that there are spiritual forces that are, are we fight spirits and powers, not people. There are spirits at work in the world that are not for us, that are against us. But again, the good news. 
Ephesians 6.13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The gospel of shalom. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, you can have a lot of fun with this imagery, and our kids actually have over the last several weeks. So if you want to know more about the armor of God, don't talk to me about it. Ask one of the kids after the gathering. I'm sure they'd be happy to tell you all about it. A lot of great things in the imagery. There, there's you know, deep dives that we can take into what does this mean and, and, and all of that. There are a couple of things that I want us to see here from this truth of, of the armor of God. The first is this. Pretty simple. We have help. We have help. God doesn't just throw us out there and be like, go get him. You got it. Right? We have help. We can be confident because we are loved, because God is with us, his power is with us, but we also can be confident because God equips us to resist the powers and principalities. Here's what I really want us to see. The elements of the armor are actually tied to words that Paul has used earlier in the letter to describe the Ephesians' new identity. These are not just nice adjectives to, you know, sword, you know, like... These are about who they are. Those are actually the things that they then use to resist the powers and the principalities. So we have help in this. And then second, there's this imagery of standing that's used several times here, right? We, we can stand. We can resist. We're not doomed to be overwhelmed and, and overcome. We stand with God's power. We stand with each other. You don't fight this alone. We, we, we resist the powers and the principalities in community together. We can stand. Mammon, politics, busyness don't get the last word. Now, Paul then transitions pretty quickly into talking about prayer and, and asking for a prayer for himself. This is not random, you know, some kind of, oh, and by the way, pray for me before I say goodbye. No, <laughs> this is very intentional here. One of the primary ways that we resist the powers and principalities is through prayer. Whether that's corporate, individual, whether that's for us or for the benefit of others, we stand and courageously fight the spirits of our age through prayer. Now, let's land the plane on this whole conversation. Paul ends the letter. We're now in verse 21 through 24. Paul ends the letter the same way that he started. With these big ideas, grace and peace and love. grace and peace, and then reminding them of his big theme, which has been God's love. You are loved, you are loved, you are loved. Walk in that love. This is the different story that we tell as we live as exiles in a culture 
that's not bent towards our flourishing. How do we live as exiles? We remember grace and peace and love, and then we walk in that love. Now, Paul signs off at this point, <clears throat> sends this guy Tychicus to deliver the letter. It's not the end of the story. 30 years later, the Ephesian church pops up one more time in Scripture. This is in the book of Revelation. If you have your Bible, actually flip over to Revelation chapter 2. The disciple John, probably the last of the disciples to still be alive at this point, has been exiled by the Roman Empire to the island of Patmos. And on Patmos, Jesus shows up and declares, I have a few more things to say. And a lot of them are really weird. We're not going to talk about that right now. <laughs> but the first part of what Jesus has to say are these messages to different churches. And one of them is the Ephesians church. Revelation chapter 2, look at what Jesus says. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and you have not grown weary. Ooh, that sounds pretty good, right? Good job, Ephesians. But then Jesus says this. Yet I hold this against you. Ooh. I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Oh, like we should feel that in our gut a little bit. I mean, I hold this against you. That's enough right there to kind of get us like, ugh. But this is particularly devastating because what has Paul loved them 30 years before? You are loved. You're loved. Walk in that love. His prayer for them was that they would know how high and wide and deep and long is God's love for them. Some translations say you abandoned your first love. Oh. Notice all the things that they were commended for, right? They cared more about being right, about correcting wrongs. They fought people. Not the powers. And then this, they worked really hard. And they did a lot of good stuff. But they forgot the foundational truth. You. This is one of the things that I love about the Bible, right? It doesn't sugarcoat any of this stuff, right? There's this temptation, I think, to read a letter like, the, like Ephesians and go, wow, look at all this great stuff, and Paul's so encouraging, and what a wonderful message, and I'm sure that they just live happily ever after, after that, that letter was delivered. But no, the church, whether we're talking about the Big C Church, whether we're talking about Discovery here in Davis, California, or this church in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, the church is an imperfect community of imperfect people. And so this is, there is this kind of bittersweetness to the way that this story ends, but it's also real, right? I think it also, you know, it asks us to do a little bit of reflection. Because we can do a lot of great things. 
We can work really hard. Persevere, overcome all kinds of stuff. But without love, it's nothing. Paul himself says it this way in a different letter. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. So as we think about all of this together, what does it look like for us to fight spiritual battles? How do we live as exiles? How do we follow Jesus in the messy in-between, right, between redemption, his, his work for us on the cross and through his resurrection and the future, the future restoration that we long and hope for? How do we, how, how do we reconcile all of this? We live as dearly loved children and we walk in that love, which sounds really great. Yes, let's do that. But it's very often not spectacular. It's not sexy. It's not flashy. It's mostly this daily, oftentimes hidden decision to love and to be loved. Even when we don't feel it. Even when we don't see it, it doesn't make sense. Even when we don't see results from it, we just keep choosing love. I want you to hear this as we come to the end of this letter. Um, I, I love this. An honor. It has been uh, an honor and a joy to pastor this church for the last four years. And hopefully for many, 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 many more years. But I don't want us to leave this moment in this letter and just jump into doing a lot of good things. And there's a lot of good things that are ahead. I mean, it's, we're heading into the fall. Students are coming back. Davis feels alive again. Eventually, the temperature will drop a little bit. Right? We've got, uh, we've got new things that are starting. We've got groups that are launching. All kinds of wonderful stuff that is happening. I also know that... that Many of you here, again, I hear those words to the Ephesians and I think persevering, hardworking, dedicated, like, man, that describes us. That describes a lot of you. You've, some of you have been through some really hard things, have been hurt in some significant ways, and you keep showing up, you keep choosing love. My encouragement word for us this morning is to just keep doing that. Like, don't get, don't get so wrapped up in doing good, doing more stuff, trying to accomplish things that we lose our first love. So let's do those things. Let's throw ourselves into it. But discovery, may we never forsake our first love. So as we get ready for communion, I'll the band come back. Um, they're going to lead us in a couple of songs. I just want us to sit with this for a, a moment. Have you gotten caught up in doing stuff? <laughs> in fighting? In persevering and grinding it out? Have you lost sight of the truth? You are loved, you are loved, you are loved as dearly loved children, therefore.
walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As we come to the table this morning, this moment is about remembering in this very tangible way just how much God has loved us. The lengths that he has gone through to be in right relationship with us. And so as you take the body and blood of Christ today, I, I mean, hopefully we have this moment every time we do this, but especially today, as you eat, say to yourself, dearly loved child. As you drink, dearly loved child. You are loved. Walk in the way of love. When you're ready, take communion with us.